This podcast is brought to you by United Bank, the community bank of the nation's capital. This is Let's Have a Drink, a podcast from BizNow Media, where we grab a drink with the people who are shaping real estate in and around Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Rothstein, BizNow's East Coast editor. Today, we're drinking martinis with Yolanda Cole, a co-founder and partner at Hickok Cole Architects. All right, I'm going to have a Hendrix martini. Hendrix. Up with a twist. Sorry, Hendrix martini. Up with a twist and just a little vermouth. And she knows that right over there. (laughs) (laughs) Have her make two of those. With just a little vermouth. Little, not too much. (laughs) Thank you. We meet at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Georgetown, down the block from Hickok Cole's headquarters. Cheers. I'm excited Cheers. to try this uh, martini There you go. So I'm glad you're drinking what I have. Oh yeah, well, once I heard that order, I was gonna have to try that. <laughs> Yolanda has been an architect for more than 25 years. She co-founded Hickok Cole with Mike Hickok, and before that, owned her own design firm. She's also the chair of the Urban Land Institute's Washington chapter. When did you know you wanted to become an architect, become an architect, or or set down that path? After I graduated from music school, I probably decided within um, six months after I graduated from from undergraduate in music education Mm -hmm. at Ohio State uh, that um, I was not going to go to grad school in music because Mm. that was my original plan. Uh, I had my teacher, I played the flute, my teacher at the time, who was um, in the college, uh, didn't have her contract rem- uh, renewed, and mm-hmm. she moved to a tiny town in Texas. And my goal at that time was to teach college flute, which was essentially what she was doing. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh my goodness, this may not be a really great idea because mm-hmm. I w- my uh, destiny would be more controlled by others. Why architecture is a little bit harder to say, um, maybe because my parents built a house when mm. I was 12, um, and I can remember being very excited about riding my bike down to the store and by you know getting plan books, looking at the plans, and I just had some kind of interest uh, in that process, and then saw them build the house. But more maybe because um, I was always a maker of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made things out of wood. I made jewelry. I made things out of glass and plastic and plexiglass and. Uh, I was always creating things and making things that were three-dimensional. So perhaps all of that somehow together. Yolanda enrolled in the architecture program at the University of Cincinnati. While she was a student there, she had an internship at a six-year-old architecture firm called Cone Pedersen Fox. The firm has since designed the tallest towers in France, South Korea, and Hong Kong, as well as the largest mixed-use development in the United States, Hudson Yards in Manhattan. She was supposed to spend only six months there, then returned to Ohio. People knew about it, but they weren't famous yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never went back. <laughs> so I stayed in New York. I transferred into the second year of a three-year graduate program in architecture um, at Columbia University, and then continued to work at Cone Pedersen's uh, Fox for 10 years. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite thing you, you worked on while you were there? 
I would have to say, um, a 42-story, million-square-foot mixed-use office building in Sydney, Australia. Um, I actually went over there to mm. Australia. We designed the building in New York and then took a team uh, to Sydney, and I lived there for two years during the documentation and most of the construction of that project, but not all of it. So that, how early on was that in your, in your career? I was in my 30s, mm -hmm. so it was pretty cool. Well, when I think about it now, that seems pretty outrageous to have been doing that at, at such a young age, but Cone Patterson Fox was like that. It mm -hmm. was full of uh, very young, talented people as well as really seasoned senior people who were getting into the documents and teaching us young kids the ropes. <laughs> what did you learn there, um, you know, both as a young person and as you matured, the firm matured that you've, you know, you've kind of taken with you? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say, you know, in that era, this is the 1980s, and so it's the high-flying 80s, and there's all kinds of building going on, and uh, we worked all the time. So um, I lived in what we call now a micro unit, which is pretty much what everybody lives in in New York and has lived in, uh, was almost never home. And, you know, the, it was kind of crazy and it was extremely competitive. Um, but at the same time, everybody's energized by that competition about and, and about the drive and the uh, and in being in a young design firm that was on its way up was was very uh, exhilarating, I would say. So a lot of hard work. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't as many women, as you can imagine, uh, in that era, so um, that may have been a little bit different, I guess, for those times, particularly when I went to Australia because it was an all-male team and me. <laughs> but um, I guess what I have found on that note is that you probably have to prove yourself longer, harder, but once you do, you're over the hump mm -hmm. and, uh, and people will stick up for you. Eventually, Yolanda left KPF, started a family, and moved to Pennsylvania. She taught classes at Lehigh University and designed houses. It didn't suit her. There was a period of time, a couple of years, um, where we had a house out on the Delaware River, and I taught um, at, as an adjunct professor at Lehigh University and did some small commercial work houses and commercial work out of the house with a small child and I nearly went mad. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> I could not do that scale of work. So Yolanda moved to DC. After stints at a couple of local firms, she got the chance to go to a small interior design firm whose owners were looking to retire soon and sell the business. She bought it and eventually merged it with Mike Hickok's architecture firm in 2003 to form Hickok Cole. I took the um risk and jumped off the cliff and went to buy into this small firm mm -hmm. and uh, with the goal of growing it into something larger that would also do architecture. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a, it was a big deal and I, you know, fussed over it and drove all of my friends mad <laughs> over it, but uh, ultimately I, that's what I decided to do. And it's, to me, to me that's really interesting because it's, it's a big career risk, right? And mm -hmm. Um, you know, obviously you've had a great career since then, it's paid off inwardly, but you know, it sounds like at that stage of your life, that's basically when people stop having the stomach for risks like that, right? <laughs> Usually the t people say like, you know, before I have kids is when I can take these big swings, and where you had kids and, and mm -hmm. moved twice, so um, I guess what gave you, do you think, the stomach to say like, you know, I really want to take this on? I guess um, my natural 
propensity is to be in charge of whatever it is. And there are people who are just like this. You you know, you join a committee and the next thing you know, you're the chair of the committee yeah. or, uh, and that's always been the case. I, I'm an only child and, mm -hmm. and so I'm very, I'm very self-motivated. I don't need other people to motivate me and, and I'm self-driven, I guess. And it seemed like a big challenge. Um, I would say at the time it seemed like a really, really uh, maybe risky thing to do. I was 40-ish, I'd say. Um, but looking back, what I say to people of that age today is any career decision is never the last one. Mm -hmm. And even if it feels like this is the only thing you could ever do, because in reality, had that not worked out, I could have gone done something else. So I think we sometimes think that those decisions are, you know, the last thing you are going to do. But in reality, it's just another step along the way. Coming up, Yolanda discusses architecture in DC and why there are so many glass boxes that look the same. We also talk about housing affordability and being a woman in leadership. What makes United Bank the community bank of the nation's capital? United Bank puts their customers and communities first. That means listening before developing solutions and aligning their approach with your goals. Combine that with extensive local knowledge and a focus on personal relationships, and it's no wonder Washingtonians choose United Bank. Bankwithunited.com. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. So let's just get into it because I have a lot of bones to pick with DC architecture. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not alone in this. Um, but I mean, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with a caveat for people who don't know. You know, DC, you can only build up to what is 140, 160 feet in the downtown. Well, the typical is 130, but there are various heights in different areas, and you can go up higher along Pennsylvania Avenue. But. Right, and most developers want to build the maximum they can, which Correct. when you're vertically challenged and you're lot challenged, it usually just winds up in a big box. That's exactly right. Um, <laughs> so, as an architect, you know, you if someone says, I want to build a building at the maximum level, you have to build a, you know, some form of box. It could have some different variants of angles, but ultimately that's what you get. So how do you play within that form? How do you be yeah. creative? Well, I think that's very great observation <laughs> for a non-architect. And uh, I would have to say that in, in some cases, we've had to negotiate that. Mm -hmm with our clients, we're, we have to say, okay, we got to do something with this massing, you know, give me 5,000 square feet to play with. Um, so some of that is through negotiation and some of it is if you, you know, if you show them something they really like, then maybe they'll latch onto it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and you can, you can get there from the start. So it, it is a constant challenge for us. So it has helped a little bit to, to change the penthouse rules mm -hmm. and give us a little bit of freedom on the tops of buildings. Um, that's a little, that's not a lot. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, I guess what it would have to take is a difference in the zoning versus the lot size. So mm -hmm. zoning would have to say, well, you can only build so much mm -hmm. that would automatically give you that play space. Yeah. But it, it really, you know, that's a big deal. What do you think of the Hyde Act? I mean, because it has its purpose, obviously. I think people really underestimate just how much of an impact it has on our city in every way. 
Well, I do agree. What it tends to create is a line, a, a stiff line uh, at the skyline at that 130 or whatever the number is, 110, wherever you are in the city that, that allows that height rather than the kind of playful ups and downs that you would find in, in other cities. And personally, I think we could loosen up. <laughs> uh, but you'd have to be very careful about where that is. Um, there are very you know, important view corridors and all of these things that have to do with our, our national monuments and the, the um, I guess, grandeur of Washington that makes it, makes it really great. And I think people do appreciate the, the green space and, and uh, the light that you get from that. But I also think we're just overly over the top on on this this strict line. And as you were saying, because we have to fill out the the uh, maximum uh, area most of the time, then you really do get the box. As chair of ULI Washington, Yolanda leads an organization focused on land use made up of more than 2000 members. Right now, the group is tackling housing affordability in D.C and how the real estate community can find solutions to the housing crisis. We decided to look at uh, two big pieces of the puzzle, I guess you might say, which is the uh, uh, community engagement as well as the entitlement process. We had roundtable discussions, we had surveys, we. The, the roundtables were almost like therapy sessions. We did it. We did it with architects and consultants, um, zoning attorneys, and developers. And um, you know, there was a lot of "I feel your pain" <laughs> moments there. Um, but what we wanted to do is kind of crack crack the nut a little bit and and see what was happening in different jurisdictions around the city particularly as it related to the special density processes. And what I mean by that is uh, each jurisdiction has a way of building more on a, on a piece of land than the actual underlying zoning. However, as populations have increased and pressure on neighborhoods has occurred from that, uh, the communities have begun to fight back. And sometimes they fight back because they want nothing. <laughs> it's not even about less. Sometimes it's about nothing. Um, and it's become to a fevered pitch, uh, to a point where, at least we started to see in our own business, developers are walking in the door and saying, I'm not doing that. I'm doing this by right. And I'm not going through that headache. Yeah. But that means we're further constraining the supply of housing units, yeah. which also includes affordable housing because most of those those processes require you in exchange to also provide affordable housing units. So it's taking something that's pressurized already and squeezing it even more. So how do we get out of this, right? Um, and part of that part of that answer is trying to figure out how to engage more positive voices within the communities. So we're looking at some other ways that we might be able to engage the community in a positive way. There are um, people looking at software platforms that are social media-like mm -hmm. um, that uh, are aiming to try to get feedback from communities at, at a larger range. Right now, that's not so official. 
because the method is that you have to go to the community meeting and you have to have your voice made at the either a at the ANC or at some other you know forum community forum and make a fuss mm -hmm. and so how do you change that process maybe mm -hmm. maybe that's not the only way you get feedback that's official so that you can can hear what more people have to say mm -hmm. um, and and tamp down maybe those two or three voices that tend to um, overstate mm -hmm. <laughs> their cause. So I think we re really need to think about the product type itself and whether we can uh, rethink how we design for, for young families. Uh, and that relates to this concept of the missing middle. You've probably heard of that, right? Oh, yes. That uh, some of our zoning really goes from townhouses to you know, mid-rise at a certain level, and we're not even zoned really for that in-between stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, could we think of those those housing units in a different way? And also in the sharing economy mode of the young people we're talking about, can't we share some of the space that they would use for their kids? Mm -hmm. So do you have, you know, do you have to have a romper room or a basement or a, or a uh, you know, a family room? Or could you really have some spaces that are shared within a, uh, within a community or even a mid-rise multi-family product where all that stuff lives? I know another thing that, um, you know, Hickok Cole has recently worked at the American Geophysicists Union, Geophysical Union. Um, the Net Zero uh, yes. renovation, actually, it smiles clearly. <laughs> I'm yeah. really excited about yeah. that. Yeah, um, so it's a Net Zero building. Uh, why don't you just explain, you know, what that means and, you know, the unique things about building something. Right. Well, it means that it can be done. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the most important thing, right, mm -hmm. to get across. And kudos to uh, AGU for you know taking that leap. So they are uh, a mission-driven organization of Earth and space scientists. So climate change is important to them as an organization, and um, their building was coming to its lifespan end as far as building systems go. And they made the bold decision to. Um, be a leader, be a catalyst, and show the way uh, to net zero in a urban uh, renovation, which is not easy to do. It's not like being in California, you know, on a big open plain. I'm really proud of them for making the statement. And so they decided they were doing this, and um, we competed with uh, other firms who had more background. We've been doing lead design and platinum and gold and all of that for a very long time in the commercial world. Um, but we'd never done net zero. And um, I think the thing that pushed us over the edge when we were going after that project is that we weren't thinking of it just as the building. People get all tied up in the engineering and the cool stuff that has to do with net zero. But we're doing this really for people. In the end, it's not about the building, it's about the people. And so we were looking at it holistically about how net zero was going to affect the population inside, how they were going to work, how this was going to be, you know, and ultimately a, a change of life experience for them. And I think that, that, um, that really rung true for them. Last thing, how do you see your role 
I guess, as, as a woman, as, do you see it as a mentor, as a sponsor, as an empower for other, other women? Um, or, you know, is it, has it gotten to the point where not everyone, not every woman who's in leadership feels this immense burden to, to lift up other mm -hmm. people? You know, I get that kind of question a lot. I bet um, there are too many. And women I wish I had a really great answer for that, but I guess for me, I never, we never talked about any of this stuff. As I was going through my career, I didn't really have any mentors and and people didn't talk about mentorship and it wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's certainly a thing now. And um, so I'm kind of a bootstrap person. Uh, so it's harder for me to kind of get this, this idea of how one should mentor, I guess you might say. And, and I think it's interesting because our, our firm is 56% women. And that's not because we have a program <laughs> or that we have a goal or that we're, you know, metrics or anything like that. We don't actively look to hire women over anybody else. We just look to hire the best talent. And um, that turns out to be kind of equal. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> Guess that. Guess what? Yeah. yeah. And um, I guess there are people who have said to me, like, oh, well, because you're, you know, you're in the position you're in, you probably attract more women. I don't know that that's true. Maybe it's true. Um, and so I guess uh, from that point of view, people see me in that position, so there's a role model component to just being there, and therefore, you know, they can see, perhaps see themselves in that. I also think that because we're trying to change the perception of men about women, that it's every bit as important for me to mentor men as it is women. Mm -hmm. So I'm an equal opportunity mentor. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, sure. I really do appreciate it. Actually, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, glad. <laughs> I'm glad. And I haven't even finished my martini. So. Miriam Hall is the creator and executive producer of Let's Have a Drink. Its supervising producer is Mark Bonner. Travis Gonzalez is the audio editor.